Well, this evening we are going to be looking at the uh, the Spirit and Jesus. Uh, you may have remembered I mentioned to you that if you look at all of the teaching in the Bible in terms of Trinitarian relations, there's a lot that deals with Jesus and the Father, that relationship, and we touched on some of it. I mean, there's a lot more than we looked at, but we kind of saw some of the main themes. Uh, and then there's a, a fair bit of material that deals with Jesus and the Spirit. There's very little with the Father and the Spirit, but uh, that will come up in what we look at tonight because that really is brought in in terms of Jesus sending the Spirit, and we realize the sending of the Spirit is from the Father and the Son and the way that works. You know, it's very interesting. When Jesus comes, he, he never says the Father and Spirit sent him. You never find that. Uh, it's the Father. The Father sent me. I came to do the will of my Father who sent me, and so on. It's always the Father and the Father alone. But with uh, the Spirit's coming, it's the Father and Jesus together, and we'll, we'll look at that in time. So, I hope you have the handout. Does everyone have that? Anyone need a copy? I, I don't see any hands, so I think, think everybody is set. Good, thank you. Well, you'll notice the introduction. I make this little uh, comment at the beginning. Amazingly, on the subject of Jesus and the Spirit, there are clearly two themes in the New Testament. On the one hand, Jesus submits to the Spirit and relies on the Spirit in doing his work, in performing his miracles, and in living his life. But on the other hand, Jesus also claims authority over the Spirit and proclaims unequivocally that the Spirit will glorify him. Can it possibly be that both are true? If so, just how can this be? I mean, it does look kind of on the surface as if these are kind of opposite uh, teachings. You know, which is it? Jesus relies upon the Spirit, depends upon the Spirit, or does he have authority over the Spirit? And I think the answer is both are true. I mean, certainly we see both in the New Testament. And I think they're true in this sense. At least this is my proposal to you. If you think you've got a, a better way of, of accounting for this, I'd love to hear it. But the, the way I think that works best for accounting for this is that Jesus comes as the Messiah uh, and takes on a human nature. And as a human, then submits, relies upon, depends upon, is directed by, is empowered by the Spirit for accomplishing the work that he is sent by the Father to do. He does that in the power of the Spirit. But then Jesus is also, as the eternal Son of the Father, he is one who has authority over that Spirit in, in terms of his own place in the Trinity, as the second person of the Trinity, as the eternal Son. And so that's evidence then in Jesus sending the Spirit, who then will come as the Spirit who glorifies Christ, who c carries forward the work of Christ. So it's very interesting. The Spirit's relationship to Christ is very much like Christ's relationship to the Father in terms of Jesus always doing the will of the Father, so the Spirit always seeks to advance the purposes of Christ. So I think that reflects the, the eternal relationship that is within the, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, where the Son has authority over the Spirit, but as he, as he takes on human nature, he accepts then the position of reliance upon the Spirit for fulfilling this messianic mission that he has to carry out. <clears throat> so we take a look now at Jesus and the Spirit, and we start, capital letter A here, 
with Jesus' reliance on the direction and empowerment of the Spirit in his role as the long-awaited Messiah, uh, the greater Son of David. And here are a couple questions. Have you all learned in your own Christian lives that questions are your friends, not your enemies? Uh, that is, very, sometimes very difficult questions provide what I think of as little peepholes in what otherwise is a solid wall that you can't see through. And all of a sudden there's a tiny little peephole where you see that there's a reality out there that you just can't see clearly yet. But there's something there. And uh, so what those questions do is, uh, is lead you to pray and think and, and uh, probe further until, at least in many cases, God gives clarity on, on what the answer to those questions are. Well, here are a couple questions that uh, one of them goes back to, the, to when I was a teenager, uh, a young, you know, in my, about 12 or 13 years old, uh, that, that uh, these questions really did unpack for me what, uh, what I'm going to be explaining to you tonight. So here are these two questions. What, here's the first one. Why would Jesus, the God-man, I mean, he is God as well as man, why would Jesus, the God-man, need to have the Spirit of God upon him? What can the Spirit of God add to the deity of Christ? So indeed, it's just a puzzle, isn't it? I mean, he's fully God in, in the incarnation. So what's the point of having the Spirit upon him? I mean, the Spirit can add nothing to his deity. In his deity, he has omnipotence, he has omniscience, he has everything in his own deity, what, what's the point of having the Spirit? But, of course, much is made of this in the Bible. We're, we're going to come to that in just a moment. So that's one question. Why would Jesus, the God-man, need to have the Spirit upon him? And here's the second question. This, this one goes back to when I was 12 or 13 years old. I remember reading in First Peter. Our pastor had told us we should read our Bibles more, so I was trying to do that. And I was sitting on my bed. I can still picture it, ba my basement bedroom in Spokane, Washington, uh, I, I was sitting there on my bed reading 1 Peter, and I read the words in 1 Peter 2 where we're told to follow in Jesus' steps who committed no sin. <clears throat> I dropped my Bible on my lap, and I looked up, and I said, that's not fair. <laughs> I mean, how can I be called to follow in Jesus' steps who committed no sin when he was God and I'm not? So here, here's the question. How can Jesus, in his sinless obedience and sacrificial service, rightly be upheld as a model for how we should live, since he was the God-man and we are not? I just think that's a very, very good question. And I honestly, I think a lot of Christian people have this question, and it actually, because they don't know the answer to it yet, it bothers them that, that they, they think they're called to live like Jesus when he was God and we're not. How could that be? <clears throat> now, both of these questions find their answer in the realization that, yes, though Jesus was God, he was also fully a man. And he came to live his life and carry out his mission as the second Adam, as the son of David, as the seed of Abraham. That is, as a human fulfilling the requirements of the Father upon him in a way the first Adam had failed. So he had to live his life fully. 
as an integral human being. So, what can the Spirit of God add to the deity of Christ? Answer, nothing. What can the Spirit of God add to the humanity of Christ? Wow! Supernatural enablement that is provided for him in his humanity, not directly, as it were, from his own divine nature, but rather as he depends upon the Spirit who provides for him what he needs moment by moment. And that leads to the second question, how can he be the example for us? Because he lived a human life. And, you know, in a sense, lived new covenant life, spirit-empowered life that we see the new covenant is, is providing for us. He lived that perfectly so that we could see what true human life looks like at its best. So indeed, we should have this attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, we should follow in his steps who committed no sin. 1 Peter 2, uh, we, we should in, in fact see Jesus as a model for how we should live because he was one of us in living his life, utilizing resources that are also given to us. So more on this in a bit, but that's, that's the main idea. Okay, well, let's take a look at some of the Bible teaching on Jesus' life in the power of the Spirit. And we begin with a couple Old Testament passages that I think are so helpful and telling about the, the Spirit upon Jesus. The first one is Isaiah 11. And I won't read all that's there, but to look with me at the, at the first couple verses. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Who is Jesse in the Old Testament? David's father. So this is a, one of many messianic promises in the Old Testament that is rooted in 2 Samuel 7. Do you hear all those S's? You can remember that reference. 2 Samuel 7, right? Where God promises to David that he would have a son who would reign upon his throne forever. So that promise to David then is echoed in a number of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, this being one of them. So here comes this son of David, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots will bear fruit, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. Now let me just stop right there. Now look at what this says of Jesus. Because he has the spirit upon him, he will have wisdom and understanding. He will have, be able to counsel and have strength for carrying out his mission. <clears throat> he, he will have the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord meaning a resolute longing to follow in the ways of God. I, I can't take time to defend that for you right now, but that's what fear of the Lord is at its heart is a resolute longing to follow in the ways of God. <clears throat> so here, here's a question for you. Did Jesus in his earthly life and ministry exhibit wisdom in his teaching, in how he dealt with people? Oh, yes. I mean, we can think of things right away that come to mind, right? Uh, Jesus and Nicodemus. Uh, Jesus with the Samaritan woman. Uh, Jesus with the Pharisees. Wisdom manifest. Second question, according to Isaiah 11, verse 2, how did Jesus have such wisdom? 
by the Spirit. Do you see it? So it is not the case that he just is wise because he's God. I think this is the way many, many evangelicals think of this. He just knows everything because he's God. He just has wisdom because he's God. He just can do these things because he's God. He can just resist temptation because he's God and on and on. And so really what that does when we go that route with it is it distances Jesus from us in our human experience because we're not God. Well, he was God, but he lived his life as a man relying upon what resources were brought to him in his humanity. The Spirit provided him wisdom, knowledge, understanding, a a resolute desire to follow in the ways the Father had put before him, fearing God. Here's another passage, Isaiah 61. This is especially an important one because Jesus quotes it at the beginning of his own public ministry. Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness. What a great image. Oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. So here comes Messiah to do this marvelous work to transform the people of God so that they are in the end oaks of righteousness. Now, how will he, how will he do this? How will he preach the word by which people are changed? How will he accomplish the work by which people are changed? And the answer is, the Spirit will be upon him. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him and, and empower him to proclaim what he is to proclaim and accomplish the work he is to do. So indeed, the Spirit on Jesus is foretold in the Old Testament as, as one who will come when Messiah comes. He will come with the Spirit. Okay, now, this is fulfilled, obviously, as Jesus comes. And so look with me next at Luke 1, verses 32 to 35. This is the angel Gabriel in revealing to Mary that she's the chosen one to be the, the mother of the Messiah. <clears throat> and uh, here Gabriel says to Mary, in verse 32, he will, be called, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. So here's 2 Samuel 7 again, right in the background, the promise to David that he would have this son. And here it is, Jesus. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. Now, two things I want to say about this text. One is, the obviously most important thing that is stated here is that the incarnation happens through the the power of the Spirit. So how how can she conceive uh, this child without a human father? 
And the answer is, though she is a virgin, though there is no human father, the Holy Spirit will take the place of a human father in bringing about this miraculous conception in Jesus. You know, sometimes we talk about the miracle of the virgin birth of Christ. Well, technically, the birth was the same as any other birth. That Well, of course, the circumstances are very different. But in, in terms of the actual biology of what took place, that's not where the real miracle happened, right? It was nine months earlier, uh, the miracle of the virgin conception of Christ in the womb of Mary. So the Holy Spirit made that happen miraculously, brought about without a human father, this, this son who would be born of Mary. But the other thing I think that happens here is that at his conception, he has the Holy Spirit upon him from the very beginning of his life in the womb of Mary. Now, here's one reason for thinking so. I think that in verse 35, the last part of what you have there on your handout, the repetition of holy, I think, is significant. Uh, The angel answered and said to, to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. So I think it's signaling that the Holy Spirit not only performs the work of bringing about this miraculous conception, but the Holy Spirit renders this child holy. And so he has the Holy Spirit upon him from the very beginning. Here's another reason for thinking so. I don't have the verse on here, but if you look back at Luke 1.15, guess who else has the Spirit while yet in his mother's womb? John the Baptist. Well, if the forerunner of Messiah has the Spirit upon him uh, at his conception, or at least before he is born, uh, how much more the Messiah, it would seem to me, would be the case. And another reason for thinking so is if you don't hold this, if you hold, I mean, what's the other kind of, you know, go-to option for explaining when Jesus receives the Spirit? What do you think that might be? At the baptism, right? Well, if you say that Jesus receives the Spirit at the baptism, he's 30 years old. So how has he gone from zero to 30 sinless? He's gone through adolescence. Sinless. I mean, any parent out here who is, well, actually, all of us, because we've been there, right? Uh, we were that. Yikes. H- how, do you get, how do you get past those years sinless? And I, I think that if you, if you say Jesus receives the Spirit only at his baptism at that point, you have to default to the view I'm trying to encourage us to move away from, and that is that Jesus lived his life through the power of his deity and therefore, he could not sin. And, you know, he, that, that, that is, by his divine nature, could, could not really be tempted and, and uh, didn't struggle with obeying the Father and didn't have to learn anything and all the rest. So I think, I think that is a mistaken way to go. Uh, and, and instead, he has the Spirit upon him from the very beginning. What happens at the baptism? Let me save that till we get to that text. But uh, I, I think that's enough. Now, and here's yet one more reason. It's the next passage. Uh, turn the page. Uh, And uh, the next passage to look at here is Luke 2, verses 40 and 52. Now, these two verses, verses 40 and 52, both state something that is really remarkable about Jesus. Uh, Look at these verses with me. The child, referring to Jesus, continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom 
and the grace of God was upon him. And then again in verse 52, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So really the basic point of both those verses is he grew physically and he grew in his own soul. His, his own inner life grew as well. His mind and his heart grew. He grew in wisdom and he grew in stature. So isn't it interesting, though, to grow in wisdom? Would you ever say of God that God grows in wisdom? I don't think so. I think you'd have to hold an openness view to, to hold that, you know, that God actually increases in wisdom. Oh, that didn't work out like I thought. Maybe I'll try this instead, you know. I, you know so God could grow in wisdom. But, you know, for, for us who are orthodox believers, no, God cannot grow in wisdom. So this has to be a reference then to his humanity, right? His, his humanity. And notice it says in verse 40 that he increased in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. So in other words, this wasn't just natural acquiring of knowledge and the like. This was a work of grace. I take it this is a reference to the Spirit. The Spirit at work within him promotes within him an understanding and a wisdom that grows over time. Now, interestingly, those two verses, verses 40 and 52, are bookends around the only passage we have in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that describes Jesus' life as a boy, right? This is the, we only have one text, and that one text is bracketed by these two verses. Isn't that interesting? And, of course, that one text is uh, Jesus with his parents who go down to Jerusalem for his dedication, and after that's over, they're heading back home. You've never done this, have you? Oh, my, where's Johnny? Back at exit th three, uh, th 35, you know, uh, but this, this happened to Jesus' parents. They're heading home, and, and all of a sudden, we don't know how far they've gotten. All of a sudden, they realize Jesus is not with us. Yikes. So they head back to Jerusalem, and where did they find him? In the temple, conversing with the teachers of the law in the temple in Jerusalem. Kind of the PhDs of the PhDs of the day. And he's holding his own with them, right? They're amazed at the things that are coming out of his mouth. Now, if you ask the typical evangelical, how was Jesus able to hold his own with the teachers of, of the law in the temple in Jerusalem? The answer will likely be, he was God, right? And I think that is the wrong answer. Not that he wasn't God, he was, but he grew in wisdom. What this is signaling is that this boy was a remarkable boy who loved the law of the Lord as a young boy growing up. And on that law, he meditated day and night. And so he became like a tree planted by rivers of water that yields its fruit in its season. His leaf does not wither. And in whatever he did, he prospered. He was the Psalm 1 prototype of, of life lived meditating upon, being impacted by uh, the, the teaching of Scripture. So I, I think this, this explains how he could know so much and, and say the things that he did as a 12-year-old boy, not because it was automatic out of his deity, but rather because it was acquired, it was learned. It, 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 he, he, he no doubt had... Good parents. I take it that God picked uh, Mary and Joseph for a reason. 
that they would have been Deuteronomy 6 parents, right? Who, who would instruct him and teach him. And, and he no doubt learned from his rabbi uh, as he was growing up in the synagogue and the like. So he, he learned and he would have meditated on Scripture himself as a boy growing up. Uh, he would have had a heart to long to know the Word of God. And because of that, he was where he was at 12 years old. Um, you know, if, if this is the case, and I have, I have every reason to think that this is the right way of, of thinking of this. If this was the case, and there had to have been a day in the early life of Christ when he was meditating, say, through the Psalms, and he came to Psalm 22, which we know he knew, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Holy Spirit illumined his mind to understand that psalm is about me. My life, the sacrifice I will render. Or meditating through Isaiah, the book of Isaiah and coming to Isaiah 53. That suffering servant is not Israel. It's me. So, I mean, it's just amazing to think of that, to, 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 to ponder the, the weightiness that he would feel as he comes to understand more clearly his own mission that has been given him by the Father. And, but even at 12, he must have had a pretty good idea of that. You remember his response to Mary, uh, did, did you not know I had to be in my father's house? Well, this wasn't owned by Joseph, right? The temple. So obviously this is his heavenly father he is thinking of. So I, I, think, I think this... this these, these verses in Luke 2, I think, are very instructive. And they, they fit, don't they, Isaiah 11. How will he have wisdom? By the Spirit. How will he have knowledge? By the Spirit. So indeed, so, so it was. Okay, moving ahead. Luke chapter 3 now is where Jesus, in his, uh, the beginning of his ministry, is baptized. And we read this. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized... And while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. Now, I think a couple things uh, are connected here with this baptism of Christ. One is it obviously was a means by which uh, the father conveyed to John the Baptist and others the identity of Jesus. In John's gospel, we read that John was told by God, the one upon whom you see the Spirit descend in the form of a dove, that's my son. Right? So, so we know that this is in part for the purpose of empirical confirmation of the identity of Messiah. But here's another thing that I think it is. In both Old and New Testaments, this is a bigger thing that I have time to defend for you, but in both Old and New Testaments, there is a way in which the Spirit works upon people who already have the Spirit to empower them for some particular mission or task that is to be done. You think, for example, in the book of Acts, the Spirit is given uh, on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, but in Acts 4, the Spirit comes upon Peter and he speaks with boldness or a miracle takes place or the like. So there is... Uh, I think, biblical precedent and, and, and uh, basis for, for seeing a work of the Spirit in empowering someone now for present mission that needs to be carried out. 
And that clearly is the case with Jesus. The baptism of Jesus is the beginning of his public ministry. The very next thing that happens after his baptism is what? Remember? Spirit takes him to the, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then he goes to Nazareth and announces himself to the world, you know, of who he is and so on. And, and boy, the battle is engaged from this moment on. Uh, and so I think this is, a, this is a, not a spirit indwelling in the first place, but a spirit anointing, a spirit empowerment for mission that, that he now engages in a way that had not been the case before. All right, moving ahead. Luke chapter 4 is the next place we see. By the way, isn't it interesting so many of these are in Luke? Have you noticed in Acts, you know, also written by the same author, by Luke, that in Acts there's also an emphasis there on the spirit on the apostles in the early church, you know, and a bunch of it at the beginning of Acts, and then it trails off. It doesn't continue with as much regularity as at the beginning. Same thing in the Gospel of Luke a bunch of stuff about the Spirit on Jesus early in the book of Luke, and then it trails off. There's not as much until later, not not as much as you move on. So I think in both cases, Luke is making the point, you get it, you get it, you see it, Spirit is there, Spirit empowering, Spirit directing him. So he kind of establishes the the pattern uh, without then repeating it over and over again later. But here we have Jesus after his baptism, Luke chapter 4, And we read this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Even stronger is Mark's account, which reads, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. So there is this very strong sense in which the Spirit directs him, uh, uh, basically uh, tells him where to go, what he is to do as Jesus then yields to the Spirit and and depends upon the Spirit for empowerment. But I think that opening statement, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, is meant to signal, it's kind of to anticipate a question that will come when we see the temptations of Christ. The, The question is, how did he resist those temptations? Jesus full of the Spirit was directed into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So I think it anticipates that question. We realize, yeah, this is how he did it. He relied upon the spirit within him to face and resist those temptations. And by the way, if you look at the three ways in which the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is described in Genesis 3, 6, good for food, a delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise, and overlay those on Luke 4, And the three temptations of Christ, guess what? It's the same three categories. Same three categories. So I think the point is the second Adam succeeded where the first Adam failed. This is really, really striking to see that. So indeed, here he is, the spirit-anointed Messiah, who as the second Adam now resists the temptations of Satan. Then after that was over, Luke, Luke 4, 14, then we read, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. You know, he, Luke didn't have to say that. He could have just said he returned to Galilee, right? But he, he includes that for our benefit so we know the Spirit is upon him. The Spirit continues to rest upon him. And news about him spread throughout the surrounding district. And then when he comes to Nazareth, his hometown, 
You know, I've had this experience many, many years ago. The first time I preached at Trinity Baptist Church in Spokane, Washington, um, after I'd grown up, you know, when I came back home to my home church and preached there, it was really just kind of bizarre, you know, to, to be there now as the preacher. And for many of the older folks in the church, I was little Brucey, you know, just, you know. So I wonder what, what it was like for Jesus to come back to his home synagogue, you know, and stand up and declare this of all things to declare. So here's what he says. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And now comes Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them the most amazing thing you could say. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I who stand before you am the long-awaited, spirit-anointed Messiah. I just incredible. I want to see the video replay uh, of of that uh, scripture reading of Jesus, and I also want to see the the view of the audience who hears him say that. You know, the stunned looked on their uh, looks on their faces. But anyway, now what, one thing I want to point out here that I think is significant. Notice in verse 17, it says the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. But then it says he opened the book and found the place where it was written. I think that implies that he picked the passage. So he could have picked other places in that book or scroll if it was a a scroll that he might have been given. And I mean, honestly, it's just very likely that what he was handed also had in it Isaiah 53. I mean, have you ever wondered this, why he picked Isaiah 61? Why not pick Isaiah 53 that announces the suffering servant who will give his life as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sin of the people? Why, why not read that text? And I think the answer is you have to know who he is before you can comprehend rightly what he has come to do. Well, who he is is spirit-anointed Messiah. So he reads from Isaiah 61 and, 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 and reveals to them, I who stand before you am none other than that long-awaited spirit-anointed Messiah. Amazing. Okay. So again, but you realize in that how important the spirit on Jesus is. This is not some little tangential point out there. This is central to his identity uh, as the Messiah. He has the spirit upon him. By the way, you know the last king of Israel, John, you'll have to check me on this, but I think, uh, I think this is right. <clears throat> Dad, you can check too. Uh, that the last king of Israel, of whom it says explicitly that the spirit is upon him. Now, of course, none of the kings of the northern kingdom had the spirit. They were all evil. But in the southern kingdom of Judah, it was a mixed bag. The last king of, the, of any of the Judah or Israel who had the spirit upon him was David. There, there are possible allusions to the spirit, perhaps on other kings but no explicit reference. So 
David's the last one who has the Spirit, and now we're awaiting for the greater son of David to come. How will we know he is the greater son of David? He will have the Spirit upon him. As David did, so will he. So in any case, that, that, that I think um, relates to this next text we look at in Matthew. Now in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 12, 28, Jesus has just performed a remarkable miracle. And, uh, and, and so much so that the, the Pharisees cannot deny a miracle has taken place. A, a demon was cast out and a little boy healed. <clears throat> they can't deny that it, a miracle has taken place. And in fact, they, they say that the way it's happened was because Jesus was filled with Satan, right? He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. That was their claim. But Jesus says, oh no, he corrects them. Verse 28, Jesus says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So two, two points to observe. Number one, the obvious one, what power did he access by which he performed this miracle? The Spirit. In other words, it wasn't, as it were, accessing his own inherent divine nature by which he did this, but rather relying upon the Spirit to provide his himself the power by which he carried out that miracle. So if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, the second thing is then the last part of that. Then the kingdom of God has come. What's the mark of the kingdom coming? The king coming. What's the mark that he's the king? He has the Spirit upon him. So if I cast out these demons by the Spirit, what does that make me? The promised king of Israel and that means the kingdom has now begun. So indeed, an amazing, amazing statement from Jesus. Um, let me add one that I don't have on the handout. Acts 2, 22. I meant to add this and I forgot. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. It doesn't say Holy Spirit per se, but there are two statements by Peter in the book of Acts, both of which attribute to Jesus the power of God that comes upon him for his performing miracles. This first one is Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, this is Peter on the day of Pentecost in his sermon, preaching. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, now listen, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. You hear that? I mean, that language is unmistakable in terms of it's God's power at work in his humanity by which he performs these miracles. It's not out of his own deity, but the power of God in his humanity. Even clearer uh, in terms of the spirit is Acts 10.38. This is Peter again. Now did Cornelius... Uh, at the conversion of the Gentiles, uh, so, sort of Pentecost two, you know, that takes place now with the Gentiles. They receive the Spirit. They're saved and receive the Spirit. And in his sermon to, Cornel to Cornelius, uh, Peter says this, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good, that's the moral life of Christ, the good things that he did, and healing all who are oppressed by the devil, the miracles of Jesus, for God was with him, with him by the Spirit. 
So I take those two statements, Acts 2.22 and Acts 10.38, as very significant on the question, how did Jesus perform his miracles? Now, that's not to say he couldn't have performed any miracles out of his own divine nature. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to say perhaps he did. All I'm saying is when you look at the evidence in the New Testament, it's clear that, that the, the, uh, the, the focus is not upon his doing this as God, but his doing this by the Spirit, therefore, as a man, in his humanity as a man. So it's a, it's a test. So I think the miracles of Jesus attest directly to his messiahship, not to his deity, only indirectly to his deity in this way. Because here, here they testify to his messiahship. Well, if he really is the messiah, then we ought to believe the things that he says. Among the things that he says are things like, before Abraham was, I am. I and the Father are one. Right? I mean, those kinds of statements from Jesus, uh, we, we, have, we have verification, as it were, for their truthfulness. Because look, he does these miracles. That's the Messiah who does that. Well, if he's the Messiah, he speaks the truth. And the truth he speaks is of his, among other things, is of his own deity. So I think it's a, they're indirect uh, um, support for his deity, but direct support for his messiahship. That he is the long-awaited son of David, uh, seed of Abraham, second Adam, who has come as the messiah. Um, okay, then, I, I make this point here. Seeing this helps explain some things that are otherwise quite puzzling, to be sure. Consider, for example, the following statements about Jesus. And we talked about this last, last night briefly in one of the questions, so I'll just be real quick on this. But uh, Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Uh, that re- the rest of the verse somehow got, got cut off of that, sorry. Of eternal salvation is the last part of that. Okay, so um, here I just want to want to make this point that 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 text is talking about a development within Jesus, learning obedience through the things that he suffered, having been made perfect, which are totally inappropriate statements to be made of his deity, but are altogether appropriate to be made of his human nature that grows and develops and learns to trust the Father with yet more difficult demands that are put upon him, preparing him for the cross. And again, I, we talked about this last night, but the, the fact that, that going to the cross was so difficult, you know, praying three times, Father, if you be willing, let this cup pass from me, just evidences there is nothing automatic about this. It, it is really, it is real, really hard fought and won. As Jesus believes the word of his Father, believes the promise of his Father, believes that his Father's will truly is the best. And the Spirit, the Spirit works within him to confirm that confidence in the Father's word. So it is genuinely, authentically human. All the way through. So, I, I, boy, if, if we don't see this, Number one, we don't understand Jesus rightly, but we don't see then how Jesus truly can be an example for how we should live. Now, now we're shifting gears to the second theme as it relates to Jesus and the Spirit 
The first one is his reliance upon the Spirit. But now, while Jesus relied upon the Spirit for the sake of his incarnational mission, Scripture is clear that the Spirit's role fundamentally is to elevate, extol, and honor the higher position and authority of the Son. So here are a few statements that highlight Jesus' authority over the Spirit. John 14, 25, and 26. Jesus said to his disciples, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So notice the Father will send, but the Father sends the Spirit in my name. So the Father sends the Spirit, but he doesn't send the Spirit to teach the word of the Father, but rather to teach the word of Christ, to take the things that Christ has said and bring it to their remembrance. So the Father commissions the Spirit to advance the teaching and the work of Jesus. Uh, a little bit different, but the same point is in John 15, 26. You know, John 14, 26, whom the Father will send in my name. Now, 15, 26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. Notice the difference? 14, 26, whom the Father will send in my name. 15, 26, whom I will send to you from the Father. So, I mean, there are two ways of saying the same thing. Basically, both of them uh, imply this, that the Father is the primary sender. But rather than sent, sending the Spirit directly like He does the Son, He sends the Spirit to the Son, and then the Son sends the Spirit to the church, to, to His apostles and the like. So it is really a dual sending, a dual procession from Father and Son that the Spirit comes. This is confirmed in Acts 2.33. This is, again, from Peter on the day of Pentecost. He says of Jesus, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, Jesus, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So, again, you have this picture of the Father giving the Spirit to Christ, Christ then giving the Spirit then to the church. And so the role of the Son in this is likened, in the sending of the Spirit, is likened to the Father's sending of the Son. The Father sends the Son, and so the Son always does the will of the Father. The Son sends the Spirit, so the Spirit always glorifies the Son, carries forward the work of the Son, advances the message of the Son, and so on. And boy, we really see this in John 16, right? Verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Why can't they bear them now? Why, why, why couldn't Jesus just teach them to them right now? Well, number one, they don't have the Spirit yet, right? Number two, they don't get it that, that Jesus had to die and rise again. They don't get it. I mean, it is not the case. I think I mentioned this. Did, did I, it is not the case that the disciples, after the crucifixion of Christ, got their pup tents and pitched their tents outside of the tomb of Jesus, waiting for Sunday morning. Oh, we can't wait for the resurrection to take place. We know it's going to happen. Uh-uh, they're cowering. They're, they're, they're frightened. I mean, our, our, you know, goodness, the Messiah? Was He the Messiah? He's dead. And it was women... <laughs> I mean, the, the humor of this in Jewish culture. It was women who were the first witnesses of the resurrection and go, went and told disbelieving dis disciples. 
So, I mean, wow, they just did not get it yet. And this is not a criticism of that. They couldn't get it. It required these things happening for them to put it all together. And then finally for the Spirit to come, for them to begin putting all these things together. So you cannot, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But, he says, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative. What does that sound like? Jesus in John 8, I do not speak on my own initiative. I speak as the Father tells me. Now of the Spirit, he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, presumably from me, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. For he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. So it's so clear that he sees the Spirit as the one who will now advance the teaching of and the, and the, the message of Christ uh, through the apostles as this then is spread throughout the whole world. Now, I included also there verse 15, just to highlight something of the amazing humility of the Son. I don't know if I can convey this to you. Uh, I'll, I'll try. Uh, in verse 14, he has just said, he, and I'm going to say it in a way I'm sure Jesus did not, but just to make the point, he will glorify me. He will take of mine and disclose it to you. Okay, so the point is, this is Jesus' stuff, right? Well, what does he say in verse 15? All things that the Father has are mine. Ah, so here, here, here is the humility of Christ. How do I have anything and everything that is mine it's mine, but how do I have it? Only because the Father has given it to me. I mean, isn't that amazing? I mean, it's like a preacher who's just made an excellent point. And he says, those weren't my words. Those were words of John Stott. You know? I mean, instead of just going with it, hey, you know, they think this is my statement. It's amazing. It's just, I mean, again, just the humility. The son, the son always wants to, as it were, defer to the Father and to, and to make sure the Father receives the honor that is rightfully His. You see this constantly. And here's a case in point. Okay, so anyway, uh, I didn't have to put verse 15 on there also, but I just wanted you to see that, the humility of the Son. Yeah, it is His. It is His. You will take a mind and disclose it to you, but all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said he takes a mind and will disclose it to you. So the Father is the ultimate originator of all that I have, he says. 1 Corinthians 12.3, another beautiful statement that summarizes the role of the Spirit. What will the Spirit do when he comes? Well, here it is. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Now, obviously, it's not just saying the words. I just said them both in reading that verse, right? Uh, don't particularly like saying the first phrase, but uh, I said them both. So it's, it's not just speaking, but it is rather uh, what issues forth from your life. If you have the Spirit, what will issue forth from your life is Jesus is Lord. You will long to see Christ honored, the word of Christ proclaimed, the name of Christ upheld. That, that's, what, that's the Spirit within you will resonate with the honor of Christ. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't care about Christ. At most, he's a swear word. You, know, you, just, you, don't, you don't long to see his name lifted high. 
But if you have the Spirit, you do. And by the way, I just, you know, we live in an age, it's always been, I mean, sin. Sin has always produced a desire for self-promotion. It has always been this way. But we live in an age where I think we are giving one another permission for self-promotion in very unhealthy ways, in, in blogging and in uh, all, all the online stuff, Facebook, way that you put yourself forward and all of that, you know, re, re, reinventing you because, because you look better that way or whatever. And honestly, we should not care at hardly at all, not, not at all, but hardly at all, uh, how we appear to others. What we should really care about is how Christ appears to others, right? Elevating Christ, putting him forward. So and this is what the Spirit wants to do in your life and mine, is see Christ put forward his word, his character, his gospel, uh, his mission, his kingdom advanced. So may, may God help us to to yield to the Spirit and see Christ uh, advanced. Then. Okay, finally, the last thing here, and I'm going to go through this really quickly, and I just picked out some things to illustrate the Spirit's uniform purpose is to put, put forward Jesus. So here's the first one. I'm just going to summarize it for you. The inspiration of the Bible. So here we have this Bible that according to 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, is produced by the Spirit. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. But the Bible, having been written principally by the Spirit, is not autobiographical, right? It doesn't have to do mostly with the one who wrote it, the Spirit. What does it have mostly to do with? Jesus, right? So Luke 24, just look at the last part of this. He explained, the last couple lines, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures, referring back then to, to Moses and the prophets uh, and, and uh, the law of the prophets and the writings. That is, the whole of the scriptures uh, speak of Christ. So there's a fundamental Christological focus in the Bible that the Holy Spirit inspired. Isn't that amazing? Here's another example. Evangelism by the power of the Spirit proclaiming Christ. Acts 1.8 You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. So what is it the Spirit wants to speak through us to unbelievers? Does he want, to, does he want us to tell people about the Spirit? No. The Spirit wants to help in, enable us and empower us to tell people about Christ. His Gospel. So it is, is, you know, this is, I think, one of the biggest problems with all things Pentecostal and charismatic. I mean, I'm just going to do a sweeping statement on the whole 20th century tradition of Pentecostalism and charismatic and third wave and the whole rest of it is that there has been such an emphasis on the spirit as if the spirit wants the emphasis on him. And he does not. He does not want. He, he wants to be backstage uh, shining the spotlight on Christ. That's what he wants to do. So, you know, it, it is, it's all about Jesus. It is. And by the way, Acts 1.8, isn't it interesting? Acts 10.38, do you remember Acts 10.38? You've heard of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the 
Holy Spirit comes upon you. So get the connection between Acts 1.8 and Acts 10.38 and realize, yep, we're called to live like Jesus. Uh, third, third point, salvation wrought in our lives by the Spirit is to conform us into the likeness of Christ. So again, what, what does the Spirit do within us? Make us like Christ. This is the ultimate goal. This was the goal the Father established for us before He created the universe, right? In, uh, whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Romans 8.29 So indeed, the likeness of Christ is what the Spirit wants to bring about in us. And how does He do that? By focusing us on Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 If you don't know that verse, memorize it. Think of it often. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord Jesus, we are being transformed into that same image. That is the glory of Christ from glory to glory. That is in incrementally increasing degrees of glory. This is from the Lord, the Spirit. So what does the Spirit use to help us become like Christ? Focusing our attention on Christ. Why do you think we have four Gospels? I want you to see Jesus. I want you to see Him again. I want you to see Him again. I want you to see Him again. I want you to marvel at Jesus. Because when you do that, you become like the one you adore. This is how we work, my friends. We long to be like what we adore. So, adoring Christ is the tool by which we become more like Christ. Okay, we'll, we'll end with that. A few, few, few uh, application points in conclusion. First, marvel at the reliance of the incarnate Son, the Son in human form, to the leading and empowerment of the Spirit. Corresponding to this, marvel at the Spirit's deep and abiding willingness to serve such submission and such humility in God. How amazing to realize that this is what God is like. So, I mean, you see, you see such... I mean, when you think of God, does the word humility come to mind? It didn't used to for me. I just never, never connected humility with God, but now I do. The humility of the eternal Son always seeking to, to be the agent of the Father's will, carrying out, carrying out what the Father gives Him to do. To see that the Spirit is always third and doesn't mind it. You know, it's not the case that he's saying, okay, it's been a long time now that I've been third. When is my time to be first? Right? Never, never. He loves the place of honoring the Son who himself loves the place of giving ultimate glory to the Father. How amazing that is. And honestly, as we're freed from our own sin increasingly, you know, bit by bit, then we can have that kind of freedom increasingly, to see another elevated and we don't get jealous. I mean, Jody and I, my wife and I have talked so often, you know, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Which is the easier one to do? I can tell you what it is. It's weep with those who weep. What's really tough is to rejoice with those who rejoice because something in you says, how come I'm not getting that? Right? 
Well, may the Spirit help us. Oh, may He help us to grow up. Get, get over our sinful preoccupation with me and be about the glory of Christ and in, in the process see how good it is to help another advance and celebrate ways in which God has shown grace to them and mercy to them. Oh my, well, may, may God help us to see. That's, that's in the Trinity. And, and to, to see how relevant that is for how we live day by day. Secondly, marvel at the absolute sinlessness of the Son as a man in the power of the Spirit and in strict and unqualified obedience to the Father. If you've been inclined to dismiss the significance of the Son's obedience due to His being God, think again. It is absolutely stunning that He never, ever once sinned. He did so as a man with resources we too have. Marvel at this. Third, marvel at, boy, a lot of marveling here, huh? Marvel at the Spirit's deep and abiding willingness to serve unnoticed without overt recognition and honor. Though He is fully God and equal to the Father and Son, yet His role is consistently to defer honor, to seek to bring about the honor of the Son to the ultimate glory of the Father. And then the fourth point, we made this last night, this uh, Note on harmony in the Trinity. Marvel at the harmonious unity of the relationships within the Trinity when Father, Son, and Spirit each participate in their unique ways, but do so with one common mission, common purpose, cooperating fully, supporting each other in their various roles to see these common goals met. We see here then a unity that is not unison and a distinction that is not discord. And what is that? That's harmony. This Trinitarian harmony of unity and distinction should be a model for how Christian families and how the whole body of Christ should function. Uh, I, won't, I won't develop that anymore. We talked about that last night. And then finally, marvel at how the Son is placed in the spotlight both by the Father in His position of authority over the Son and by the Spirit in His position as subordinate to the Son. If the Father's uniform disposition is to call others to look at my Son, and if the Spirit's uniform disposition is to urge and empower others to look at the Son, then it should be clear to us that our focus must be toward the Son.